good to be back here in the mountains again. And some of you were talking about your Thanksgiving because you made it up the mountain or you were having trouble as you were coming up the mountain. I can assure you that during this whole week, we kept looking at the maps where we needed chains. I don't like to put chains on. And we were wondering if we were going to make it or not. We're here, and praise God for that. Thank you for that wonderful, wonderful song. The New Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting how God takes so many, many things in the Bible, and he personifies them. And in that song, there's a personification of the New Jerusalem. And that's incredible, and that's wonderful. Have you ever created a dream or a vision and you personified things of heaven, many of the things there. That song began how? As a dream. I lay in my bed, and then that dream occurred, and then the rest of the song occurred. So really, that's a beautiful song of a dream. About three weeks ago, my wife and I gave a Bible study to some non-Adventists from Barstow that came down to our place. And I'm going to give you that same Bible study this morning on the 144,000. It's going to be different, I believe, than you've heard before, but I hope it provokes more study in your part as you leave the church today. I have copies of my notes for each person. I'm going to have my wife, and maybe somebody could help her give a copy of those notes. Is there a way to hold this microphone up by any chance, or maybe have a, a, a portable mic? I even prefer the portable if you have it. This is dropping down, and it'll be a challenge. Oh, here comes a rescue team. Oh, I have a hard time holding it. Do you have a, a mic handy? Just give us a moment and we'll get all wired up here and be ready to go momentarily. Before we begin, I just want to share something with you that I think is very important. The study of the 144,000 is extensive, very deep. I'm going to tiptoe into that realm a little bit here this morning. But if you want to scribble on top of your notes there a couple things just to show you how this can be expanded. And I won't get into all these here this morning. I'm just going to let you think about it and study it later. The Levites in the children of Israel has some metaphorical meaning to the 144,000. Another thing that represents the 144,000 is the Melchizedekian priesthood. And again, we won't have time to deal with that. The Philadelphia church and the seven churches represents the 144,000. The tribe of Judah in Israel, in the, in the metaphor at the end of time, represents the 144,000. The two witnesses in Revelation 11 also represents the 144,000. I'm just giving you some of these things 
just to provoke your thinking, and I hope maybe your future study about this particular topic. I want to approach the 144,000 in a little different way this morning so you can see how God really opens up the concepts of a very special group of people. I'm going to do a lot of reading, but I'll comment as we go through this, as I do when I give Bible studies. From the Korean Unification Church to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, many Protestants, to even Muslims, there is a sacred intrigue, including Seventh-day Adventists, about the number, the 144,000. To Christians, the key Bible texts that begin this narrative, then I saw another angel ascending from the east, underlined or circled the word ascending, very important, having the seal of the living God, Revelation 7, 2, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. That came up a little bit in our Sabbath school class this morning, Revelation 7, 3. Incidentally, you'll see I use different translations only because it appears to be a better way of saying what the Greek has. And I heard the number of those who were sealed 100 and 44,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed, Revelation 7, 4. These verses are loaded with details of this special group of individuals. The owner of the seal, the living God. That means the seal that God's people, the 144,000, get is sacred. The angel from the east that ascends is Christ. He is doing the sealing. And again, that reverts us back to Ezekiel chapter 9. It's a beautiful chapter to analyze. Ezekiel 8 talks about the apostasy at the end of time among the Christian church. The location of the seal, the forehead, meaning the person has become totally his, it is a sign that they have become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Note the mark of Satan's kingdom is also the forehead, the mark of the beast. The name of the Antichrist, Revelation 17 tells us, is Babylon. And it's tied to the number 666. Incidentally, that's a very important number to understand. It's not completely as sometimes we teach it. Number six is a Babylonian mathematical number. And all their mathematics was based upon the number six and not ten. The number sealed, and this is an area of a lot of problems in discussions that I'm sure some of you have heard about. Twelve is a kingdom number. This is how it is used. If the Jewish people wanted to emphasize a number, they made a square root of it. In this case, 144. If they wanted to emphasize it further, they multiplied it by 1,000, thus 144,000. In Jewish ancient Hebrew thought, this is an extreme emphasis that God's kingdom has been made up from the number 12. And that's a very important way to recognize that. These people make up the kingdom of God. The number is complete. Now, there's many debates. I'm not going to get into it this morning. 
whether this is a literal number or not a literal number. It's a literal symbolic number. Please understand that. And I know that sounds maybe like double talk. It's a literal number, but it's a symbolic meaning in ancient Hebrew thinking. The 12 tribes of Israel that are mentioned there in Revelation 7, there are many who believe this is literal Israel. Incidentally, when giving Bible studies to evangelicals, this is a real tough stumbling block. And we're doing that with some of these Bible studies we're giving. And the issue of Israel is a real challenge. And they believe that this is literal Israel. The book of Revelation presents the centrality of the church in prophecy. Later, the New Jerusalem, representing God's church, has 12 gates, symbolic of those tribes. 12 foundations, symbolic of the 12 apostles. Meaning, it represents the unity between the Old and New Testament for the believers of God's final church or kingdom. In fact, the New Testament has a great deal of material on the church as the new or true Israel, Galatians 3 and Romans 2. The word, the word sealed, fragizo, in the Greek means a sign of ownership. These people now belong to God. So there's a number in Revelation 7 of the 144,000. It is a kingdom number. It is made up before the sealing. And four winds of strife are to be held back. So those who have been made up as the 144,000, those who are going to be citizens in God's kingdom, hold back the strife because these people have to be sealed. They have to be formally recognized as citizens. John the Revelator later noted in the beautiful imagery of Revelation 14, lo, a lamb stood in the Mount Zion representing heaven. And with him, 144,000, the kingdom number again, having his father's name written in their foreheads. They are not only citizens, but now in God's kingdom. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. They are a special choir that can sing a certain song. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They are part of the retinue that follows Jesus. Even in heaven, and Ellen White describes that. It's very fascinating, some of the things that she says. These were redeemed from among men, the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. They are the first of some group to be saved. And without fault before the throne of God, they are uniquely placed before God's throne, perfect in character. Do you see all the information that we have packed into one little verse or series of verses? Citizens of the kingdom, special choir. They have a theme song for them. Follow Jesus, perfect, holy, positions before the throne, and God's name is in their foreheads. Now, the question that we want to try to identify here this morning, how do we identify the 144,000 today? Now, you'll have to bear with me because a lot of the teaching we do is with non-Adventists, and we can't pull out Ellen White's writings right away. 
And sometimes we pull them out without saying much because it's not time to deal with some of those issues. And I'm hoping this morning that we can unfold from the Bible mainly itself some of the great issues, but I will use her in a very special way towards the end to show you that the 144,000 and the great multitude becomes one. And you watch and see what happens. Important key, the 144,000 are usually associated with another group of people. In Revelation 7, our key chapter, they are associated at first with a great multitude. Revelation 7, 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now we're going to take and go a little bit deeper to get some of the broader concepts of what the 144,000 really mean. A study of the twos. Forgive me, I'm going to be very elemental as we start out and then we'll get deeper as we go. This begins in the Garden of Eden. Adam came first, then there was Eve. The pair became one. They became the progenitors of the whole human race. At the time of the end, Christ, the bridegroom, marries the church, the bride. The pair becomes one, then follows the marriage supper of the Lamb. With Christ, they become administrators in the kingdom, the whole kingdom of God, and joint heirs with Christ. In many biblical stories and in apocalyptic prophecy, a twosome, I'm not sure if that word's in the dictionary, but we introduced it here this morning. A twosome is frequently used to illustrate God's people. And what we're about ready to talk about is vital to grasp some of the issues of the 144,000. Number one, God called Moses, come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Exodus 3.10. Moses did not want that responsibility. Who am I? He asked God. Exodus 3.11. Moses had many excuses right there in the presence of God. The Bible says that God actually got angry with Moses. It's a special kind of anger, another study. He was resisting heaven's call to lead his people out of bondage. Moses finally agreed. God then gave Moses a wonderful promise that we can claim here this morning. Certainly I will be with thee. Now therefore go and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Have you ever were in a situation where you knew you wanted to witness and you had to witness and you just didn't seem to have the right words I've been in those situations many, many times. This is a promise in those times that we can claim. God can give us thoughts and words to say. My Bible tells me if the Holy Spirit has really come down in, in a special way, he can help us preach in a different language. I know you're not hearing Spanish here this morning. 
Having once accepted the work, he entered upon it with his whole heart, putting all this trust in the Lord. Clearly, this is Ellen White. I'm not quoting it, but sometimes I have to do that in some of the presentations we make. God blessed his, his, his obedience. This is an example of what God does to strengthen the character of those who trust him fully and give themselves unreservedly to his commands. God permitted Aaron, Moses' elder brother, to initially be his spokesman because he had become inefficient in the Egyptian language. These two men were called to deliver a great multitude, two to three million people, out of Egypt. Egypt in prophecy also represents the wicked world. They were special representatives of God, a small group leading Israel out of a wicked area, a large group. This is the first illustration of how this will work for the 144,000. Stay tuned. Once the Israelites entered Canaan, they were to be a small group to reach the world, a large group. Again, the pattern of two. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Next verse, jumping down to the bold part, speaking of Israel, through thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Messenger, two to three million people. The Israelites, a small group, if you please, witnessing to the whole world a great multitude, a large group. The purpose, to expand the number of God's people, his body, his church, and his kingdom. Illustration number three. I'll give it just enough to perhaps rivet the importance of this two-group situation of God's people. The return from Babylon to Canaan in 539, the prophet Daniel began reviewing the book of Jeremiah. Daniel 9.1 tells us that. He knew that the 70-year Babylonian captivity of the Jews was about ended. There, the 70 years is mentioned in Jeremiah in those two texts. They had been there because of apostasy. The first captives had been taken in 605 BC, and that means that somewhere is around 536 to 535 BC, the 70 years would end, and in wonderful fulfillment that was prophesied long before Cyrus was ever born in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44 and 45, Cyrus became the deliverer for those people. Thus, Cyrus, a pagan king, the Lord God of heaven gave me the kingdoms of the earth. And Cyrus is spoken of in the Bible as a messianic figure. And yet he was a pagan king. It's very fascinating, this study. Jumping below the text, Cyrus made the royal decree resulting in the prophecy being fulfilled. He also gave a mass of wealth and supplies to accompany God's people back to Jerusalem and to God. Now here's something interesting. Upon Zerubbabel, known also as Shishbazar, a descendant of King David, Cyrus placed the responsibility of acting as governor of the company, returning to Judea. 
and with him was associated Joshua, the high priest. It was a beginning again for God's people, just like it had been previously when they left Egypt. The pattern of two once again emerges. Messengers, two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, small group, they called the great multitude, 50,000 people approximately, those Hebrew people who wanted to return, sadly many stayed behind, became the nucleus for rebuilding their God's nation, a large group. The purpose to redefine the meaning of God's people, to develop a body of God's people. Two individuals, Moses and Aaron, two individuals here, Zerubbabel and Joshua, becoming a small group, a small nucleus for a larger group. Those Jews returnees were put on probation. God gave through Daniel a 490-year window of time to prove their loyalties, but they failed again, and then mercy ended. That, incidentally, is a wonderful takeoff point to deal with the issue of Israel today when you're dealing with non-Adventist. Jesus gave a final curse to those people, and I'll skip over that and go down to the underlying bold. He would now have to begin all over again. Anticipating fully that failure, Jesus, early in his ministry, chose 15 disciples, eight disciples. There's the kingdom number once again being emphasized by the number of disciples that Jesus chose. Anticipating fully the, that failure, Jesus early in his ministry chose the 12. And just before he ascended to his father, he commissioned them, go ye and teach Egypt, China, just one area, teach all the world. There we are once again with this concept of a small group and a large group in this illustration, the whole world. The purpose to develop a covenant body for God's kingdom, the New Testament church. What was their success? Colossians 1.23, the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, I am made a minister. So at that particular time, we have the gospel going to the whole world. But that became a symbol, a metaphor, for the end of time of what would happen with a small group and then a large group. Now here's a concept, a very important biblical concept. We don't hear this very often. The pattern of two, one representing a smaller group, the other a larger, continues right up through the end of time. It's part of God's administrative plan to complete his redemptive work. This points out an important principle. This may be new to you. I, I hope it's not, but I hope it's something that's provocative to study. Though there will be the sheep and the goats, the unjust and the righteous, the wheat and the tares, 
That is not our apocalyptic focus here this morning. This unique pattern of two refers to two distinct groups of righteous people who will be saved at the end of, excuse me, end of time as one. Again, there are divisions that Revelation 7 portrays. The 144,000 form first. Before the final work begins, we'll talk about that momentarily. The great multitude, the byproduct of the 144,000 witnessing after the final work has begun and then finally ended. Two groups of people that at the very end will become one, as you will see. Revelation fills in a greater details. In Revelation 10, 1 and 2, John sees an angel coming down. Hello? We saw in our text in Revelation 7, this one angel coming up, ascending. And it's Christ. We won't spend time showing you why. Christ ascending from the east, the place of the rising of the sun, if Christ is ascending from the east to try to deal with the ceiling of the 144,000, when does he come down to planet Earth symbolically so he can ascend from the east? This is the verse right here, a very profound. We wrote a whole book on this one chapter. This angel is Jesus, and with a raised hand, he takes an oath with heaven done also in Daniel 12 regarding a timing prophecy. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no longer a delay. This, the King James Version is not translated correctly on that, just FYI. Some of you may be well aware of that. There's no longer a delay, not no longer time that verse. Some time is about ready to begin. What time? And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy a thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. Two witnesses representing the hundred and forty four thousand. Just like our illustration of Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Zerubbabel. Now, the two witnesses, Adventists know, and Ellen White substantiates, representing the Old and New Testament, I can tell you there's probably a dozen different ways that Adventist scholars see this now, and I think most of those we have to be sympathetic to. But what does Joshua and Zerubbabel represent as witnesses? An ordained leader, a priest, and a civic leader, or a lay individual. Think about it. That's a very important study in the Bible. What preparation do they need? John symbolizes the witnessing saints as eating up the book. Adventists have a historical application for this. Many of the historical applications that Adventists have fit as great metaphors in preparation for the end-time work. 
And I can tell you it's a beautiful study to start getting deeper and deeper into some of these early historical ways we understand. Again, a small group is implied, the bold area, and the world is their field of witnessing. John notes in their Revelation 11:7. this is crucial. John notes in Revelation 7, it's the first phrase in that verse, the two witnesses finish their task. Very important. There's another major illustration in Revelation, though the seal, through the seals will be studied later. I have that down. This is because of the Bible study. Forgive me. The first seal is very instructive. And I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. White? And oh my folks, this is a problem text in most of the Protestant world today. Most individuals feel that this represents Satan moving forward his people at the last. Nowhere in the book of Revelation does white refer to anything that's evil or anything that's satanic. White always represents holiness and purity. This is a white horse, and horse represents people in military action. There's a group of holy people which represents... And again, we don't have time to deal with this. The 144,000, they are going out conquering and to conquer. And a crown is given to the rider of this horse, the horseman. And there's two kinds of crown in Greek. One crown is a kingly crown or a diademos, we call it in Greek. The other is a stephanos, and the stephanos is here. Stephanos means a crown of victory. This horse is going out and the rider has in his hands. It doesn't say it's put on his head. It's a crown of victory. And another way we know it's a crown of victory, in ancient Hebrew thought, when someone is holding just a bow, it is symbolic that an arrow has already left and it hits its target. Beautiful. The things, the symbolism that we have here in this first seal. But I'm giving that to you. That white horse represents the 144,000 and the rider is Jesus Christ. Scholars and expositors have also concluded the 144,000 represent the group that finishes the gospel. They are distinct and identified as receiving the seal of the living God. Their work brings in so many that they can't be counted. The sealing means they are rooted deeply in Christ and his teaching. They have repented of all sins. They have put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. That's the white horse that symbolizes part of that. And the context of Revelation 7 suggests that they merge. Yes, they merge into the great multitude. And I will show that to you in a few minutes. They are translated without seeing death. They're called the first fruits. They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony and faith of Jesus. These two witnesses and their white horse must be prepared to witness. Folks, have you ever stopped to think there's two issues for us as Seventh-day Adventists as we approach the end of time? 
really important. We don't talk about this. We need to study and deal with this issue more. Number one, there is the great issue of our own preparation. And this, the message in the seven churches is Christ's great cry to the 144,000, what you need to do to get ready to help finish the work. It's very personal in those seven churches. And then the preparation to have the right message to give to the world. Those are two distinct and separate studies that we have in the book of Revelation. The personal preparation and the evangelist preparation so we can become part of Zerubbabel and Joshua to go out and finish the, Josh the work. One of the great messages in preparation. We always talk, we always talk about the three angels' messages. And we must not stop talking about the three angels' messages. But there's far more in the book of Revelation of that preparation. Eating of that little book is vital. Did you know? Ellen White said in second manuscript release, page 20, that the unsealed portion of Daniel will become part of the loud cry. The unsealed portion of Daniel will become part of the loud cry. There's more to give to the world than just the straight three angels' messages. The unsealed portion of Daniel are segments of Daniel 8 through 12. And it's vital that we understand that because it is to be merged in the great message that reaches the world with the three angels. The next page I'm going to skip over. That's a graph of some of the issues related to Revelation 14. It's going to get more serious now. I'm watching my time. I, as some of you know, when I write and I teach and I have outlines, it's very extensive and it's so fun for me. This is... This is wonderful, very exciting for me to study these things out and to write and bring in other consultants. Revelation 7 is where the study of that number and its details advance. That chapter is an actual pause within the prophecy of Revelation 4 to 6 of the seven seals. Now, I presume you know about this. I'll just mention it briefly, and then I'm going to skip over part of this. A pause in prophecy, and there's several of them in the book of Revelation. There's two kinds of pauses. One is a commentary insert. We can see the flow of the prophecy, then all of a sudden there's two or three verses that just seem to be not on that subject, and then the prophecy continues. And those are simply prophetic inserts, information inserts. And in some ways it seems very strange, but the book of Daniel also has the same thing, especially Daniel 8 through 12. But there's another great break that we find in Revelation 7 is one of those great breaks, and that's called an interlude where there's an absolute break and a new message is given 
And then in chapter 8, verse 1, we pick up the final seal. This is an interlude about the 144,000. We're trying to figure out here when this is going to occur. Right in the middle of the page, sealing prophecy of God's people in the Old Testament. Ezekiel revealed four abominations that would infiltrate the Christian church at the end of time. That's Ezekiel 8. That's an area that I wish we had time for. That's two sermons in itself, just that one chapter. God followed this drama with a sequel, a divine judicial edict in Ezekiel 9. The charge go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, representing God's church, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for the abominations that be done. One of the signs of God's people who are going to be sealed have a deep burden for sin. And it's identified here, especially sin that might be in the Christian church. It is easy to think it's only the Adventist church. I think when we study these prophecies, it's very healthy as we relate to non-Adventist to understand this also in the Christian world. And there's reasons I said that, but I can't go over them. To others, go after them through the city and smite them. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Ezekiel 9, 5, the wicked are destroyed. Here is a sequence that we have from Ezekiel 8 and 9. Apostasy in the church. Sealing of saints who abhor sin and rebellion and destruction of the wicked. Do you see that sequence? That's from those two chapters, and there's just a lot of information. In fact, the apostasy in Ezekiel 8 is given in sequence. And the angel is constantly telling Ezekiel, and the next one is going to be worse and worse and worse. So there's actually a sequence there. The man who did the sealing was totally clothed in linen. The word for linen in Hebrew is bad, meaning the fine linen that a high priest wore, especially on the Day of Atonement, which is a judgment day. It is Christ. We find Christ also above the waters in Daniel 12. He is totally clothed. That means a special kind of underwear, an outside uh, robe, the turban on top of his head. It's all made of this very fine linen, which only grew in certain places in Palestine and Egypt. Those sealed are the same individuals who are called the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. Next page, the Revelation account. Four angels in Revelation 7 are holding the four winds. Jumping down to the dots, they're located on the four points of the compass. That's one of the expressions that we find in the Hebrew world. The angels are standing and holding the winds. God is in sovereign control. And I saw another angel ascending. There's that word again in the same verse. Till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. There is to be a delay in earth's final events until the sealing task is completed. This ascending angel is Christ, the sealing angel we met in Ezekiel. Something profound has just been exposed. 
Christ ascends from the east, not descends. East means deliverance in prophecy. Ascends mean he's already on earth. If Christ is here helping God's people prepare, prepare for the end, when did he descend? And here's this verse once again, Revelation 10.1. I'm just identifying it, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Incidentally, in the Bible, when a cloud is tied in with an individual, this has been studied by a scholar by the name of Gregory Beale, a very amazing man that ties in the, the joint uh, holding of hands between the Old and the New Testament. Any being tied in with a cloud represents a divine being. That's a good rule to follow, and that helps us to understand Daniel 7, 13, and 14, if some of you have studied those verses about Christ approaching the Ancient of Days on a cloud. This is a point in time that God comes symbolically down to help those who will be his final witnesses, the 144,000. In this preparation chapter, he comes with a rainbow of promise authority of the whole world to feed on both the earth and the sea, filled with heaven's glory, the face is a sun, and ready to begin judicial work. His feet and legs were as fire. And we find Christ has a similar image in Revelation 1. The key preparation in Revelation 10 is to eat, to become part of us, him. A little book he has opened so they can witness. That is the unsealed, por unsealed portion of Daniel. Sometimes the question comes up in the studies that we do and the seminars that we put on. Why weren't some of these things understood before? Part of the reason they weren't understood before is because part of the book of Daniel was sealed. And if you study the sealed portion, if you looked at any Hebrew words, the part that was sealed is the ha-hazon. Or if you use Strong's Concordance, it's called kazon, C-H-A-Z-O-W-N. And that portion was not unsealed until recently. Ellen White, in Second Selected Messages, page 105, felt that the message of the 2300 days was unsealed. It was unsealed for that group. But if we look at the Hebrew, the 2300 day prophecy really wasn't sealed. It was part of what we call the Marah vision. Even Daniel said in Daniel 10 verse 1, I understand the Marah vision. So it's a beautiful whole thing, it's a beautiful study. Before top of page 12, before two very important events are recorded in 10 and 11, the preparation occurs right after Jesus comes down. Folks, Revelation 10 and 11 really should be one chapter, but they're not. Chapter breaks are artificial, verses are artificial breaks, I'm sure you're aware of that. But we have this preparation chapter in Revelation 10. Jesus comes down for this special preparation.
Then we have eating the book, and the next thing is the judgment of the living. That's Revelation 11, verse 1. Number two, something else happens. This all is in preparation for the witnessing that occurs for 1260 days. Now, I know some of you have been trained very heavily, and I was also, that this has to represent 1260 years. I want to share with you a rule, a Hebrew rule that's exceedingly important, very crucial. The introduction of some of these issues in Daniel 7 and 12 is very crucial to our understanding of timing prophecies. The rule, when a word, the word day is mentioned with a number, it always represents a 24-hour period. That helps us even to understand the creation week. So I share this with you, and this 1260 days is a spinoff of some of the issues in Daniel 12. Please understand, this is a great issue within our denomination right at this time. Their witnessing brings us to the great multitude. Now look at the graph. I'm going to just move forward fairly rapidly at this time. There's apostasy in the church. Putting all the things together, I've just so superficially skimmed over. That's Ezekiel 8. Christ figuratively comes down to prepare the 144,000. Revelation 10, 1 through 5. We can show all this in the Hebrew and Greek. It's just beautiful. He prophesies that the time will soon be no longer delayed. Once again, the King James doesn't have the word delayed in it. The New King James does, the NIV does, the Net Bible does. So there's going to be something now. A timing clock that was delayed is now going to begin ticking again. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 6 of Revelation 10. He instructs these saints to eat the unsealed portion of Daniel, part of their message. Revelation 10, 10 and 11, if you want to scribble in there, study also second manuscript release, page 20, and there's others. The judgment of the living now comes in. It's there in the sequence right in the Bible. Christ ascends and cries to hold the winds of strife so the 144,000 can be sealed. The witnesses receive the Holy Spirit, the candlestick, the olive tree, Revelation 11:4. The witnessing begins, evangelism work, and it says 1260 days. That's about three and a half years, and there's hours of study on that one thing. Revelation 11, 3 through 7. And then finally, the great multitude seen around the throne. When we put these prophecies together, and I know this is different than some of you have been trained. It's different than I was. 25 years of research. It took me two years to break away and just look at the Bible and the Bible only as to some of these issues. This information is profound. Before the last three and a half years, the 144,000 will be commissioned to cry. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Have you ever thought who's going to be announcing that? We focus on the ten virgins. There is someone that cries, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Someone knows the bridegroom is coming. 
someone has done their homework about the bridegroom coming. The 144,000 have a preparation work, not only individually, but they have a preparation work of a message that they are to take to the whole world. So it becomes very important, this preparation of this little group, the 144,000. No wonder Ellen White says, strive to be among the 144,000. Be among those who are willing to change their lives and have the blood of Jesus Christ change them to Christ-likeness and be willing to study so they have a message. Let's go to the next page. Another just few more minutes and we'll wind this down. They are identified by the key role of witnessing those who, whom the Lamb shall lead by the fountains of living waters and from whose eyes he shall wipe away all tears will be those now receiving the knowledge and understanding revealed in the Bible, the Word of God. To us has been given the privilege of receiving the wisdom that comes from God, of seeing the beauty and the glories of that Word which lies at the foundation of all true knowledge. The Bible teaches us what a Christian ought to be and what ought to do. That's it. Those are those two things. Ellen White is talking about those same two things. They will be students and they will be obedient to the word besides the three angels' messages. Ellen White, in the very middle of the page, a great work will be done in a short time. A message will soon be given by God's appointment that will swell into a loud cry. This is that quote I was telling you about. Then John will stand in his lot to give his testimony. Whoops. Then Daniel will stand in his lot to give his testimony. Where does the verse come from, give his testimony in the Bible? That's in Daniel 12. Daniel 12 is part of that end-time testimony that we are to give to the whole world. At the loud cry, and Ellen White has it in several places, at the loud cry, that unsealed portion of Daniel is to become part of the three angels' messages. Why does it have become part of the three angels' messages? Because in that part of the unsealed portion of Daniel is a timing prophecy that, like nothing else can be given, gives an urgency to the final message for the whole world. Remember what the first angel message says, fear God and give glory to him. Why? Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. How do you know that? You know that from parts of Revelation and the unsealed portion of Daniel. Crucial. It won't be a message of 1844, and let's look back and see that that has occurred. There's something urgent, and we are told in Revelation 10 and 11 that the judgment of the living begins before that period of time. Crucial to understand. And this may come as a surprise, another quote from Ellen White, the fifth chapter of Revelation needs to be closely studied. It is of great importance to those who shall act as a part of the work of God in these last days. There are some who are deceived. They do not realize what is coming on the earth. 
those who have permitted their minds to become beclouded in regard to what constitutes sin are fearfully deceived. Unless they make a decided change, they will be found wanting when God what? Study this quotation over and over and over again. Ellen White understood a lot of things that she didn't elaborate upon. What she is saying in that last phrase, phrase relates directly to the sealed scroll, the seven sealed scroll. What is she saying? Revelation 5 is of major significance for the finishing of the work. It is related to those whom God will pronounce judgment on who have transgressed his law. Well, I want to wind down. I could go on and on. This is a very extensive subject. It's a wonderful, wonderful subject. But I want to share something with you. I, I gave a, a lecture one time, actually a seminar one time, at Pacific Union College. In Sabbath afternoon, we were one of the amphitheaters, one of the classroom amphitheaters. And a man stood up, and I always love questions in that scenario, and he, he said, kind of off the subject at that moment in time, is the 144,000 a literal number? Well, I don't accept those kind of questions because they're taking me off topic and it's not the best. And I heard throughout this audience, I don't remember how many people, maybe 70, 80 people there in the amphitheater, kind of rumbling. I didn't know if they were sympathizing with him or wishing him to sit down. A lot of these things, and we pick these things out of Ellen White's quotes often, which is very dangerous. And we, t we juggle them as if they're balls that we can juggle and debate and what have you. God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to find a precise center of understanding what truth is. I want to ask you a question. And I'll end with this. We read the verse early on this morning. John is seeing these people around the throne. How many people are around the throne? A great multitude. In fact, John says there's too many to number. And who are these individuals that are around the throne? They do, you're right. But what does the Bible say there in Revelation 7 who these individuals are? Okay, these are around God's throne. Too great to number, they came through what? Great tribulation. These are the individuals that are translated. These are the individuals that went through Jacob's trouble. Right? That's what the Bible says. So we find here the ones that are translated are too great to number. Do you like that? That's incredible. That means that when we evangelize the world, God is promising us that evangelization is going to be effective. I like that.
That's right. Now, based upon that, that ver those verses and our understanding of Revelation 7, maybe this will bolt you over, but let's look what Ellen White says. On the last page, page 14, this is speaking of the night of deliverance that she's writing this. The living saints, a great multitude in number, is that what she says? The living saints, this is at the time of deliverance, this is during the time of Jacob's trouble, this is during the time of the great tribulation, knew and understood the voice of God while the wicked thought it was thunder and earthquake. When God spake the time, he spoke on us, the Holy Ghost. Wow. What is that saying? Folks, think. The 144,000 become the great multitude. Just like the illustrations that we gave you towards the beginning. There's two groups, but they merge into one. There's the 144,000 that help finish the work, but they merge into one and become a great multitude, too great to number, surrounding God's throne, and they're the ones that came through the great tribulation. Do you see how we have to be awfully careful how we look at these things, but... Just like the illustrations over time and time and time again throughout the Bible, two becomes one. You may have to ponder this, but this is crucial to really understand. So when somebody throws a question at me, is that a literal number? I don't care. It's misinterpreting the context of the truth that God has given to us. From the Bible and Ellen White's writings, the 144,000 become the great multitude. And those are the ones that surround the throne. Study this, ver this in, in God's uh, people delivered in great controversy. Study some of these. Let me get your question afterwards, brother, if you don't mind. So this is something crucial for us to understand. So let me just end with this thought. I've gone a whole hour. I apologize. What are the two things that God is challenging us? And Ellen White mentioned this. Incidentally, I, I can get going here. I have to say one more thing on this quote. Not the last page, page 14. Middle of that quotation towards the top of the page, the first dot he poured on us the Holy Ghost. What do you think that means? Janine, this goes along with some of those quotes that you gave to me. At this particular time, Ellen White talks about the saints glowing like Moses when he came down from the mountain at that time. Something fascinating. Think about it. Study it out. So many things are happening at that given night, that night of deliverance. Also, Ellen White says, I think it's 642 in Great Controversy, it's somewhere in that area there, that at that time, God delivers the everlasting 
covenant to his people. What? That night? We have to wait that long? Yes, that's what she says, and she's right. The everlasting covenant give, delivered to God's people is like a marriage license. Do you know that means that the wedding has just occurred in heaven? Does the wedding occur before Jesus comes? Luke 12 says it does. The wedding occurs before Jesus comes and when the everlasting covenant is delivered to the people of God and they start to glow in their faces, they're married to Jesus. It's forever. No divorce at that point in time. It's a forever wedding that has occurred and then Jesus comes to take his own. Folks, there's so many profound things. Revelation, a correction, Daniel 7, verse 13, when this son of human is what it really says in, in the Aramaic. This son of human on a cloud comes to the Ancient of Days. We kind of see that, excuse me, we see that as coming to get his kingdom, but then there's the investigative judgment and other things. They're all right. But there's something else in Aramaic in that chapter that's profound that we can show. Revelation 7, excuse me, Daniel 7, verse 13. Jesus is coming also there. Study this out. To the Ancient of Days, before he receives his kingdom, he needs to have a wedding and be married to his church. Think about it. And again, that's a whole hour subject in itself. The last end time issues we wrote, we talked about that just a little bit. So there's a lot in that one verse in Daniel 7. Well, I hope this has been provocative. Truth is never ending, stimulating, exciting, and part of these truths that are unfolding now. See me afterwards, brother, if you wouldn't mind. I'd appreciate it. Part of these truths that are unfolding right now, we have the privilege of becoming part of. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's incredible that you have permitted mankind to be redeemed. It's hard for us to grasp and understand the inc incredible sacrifice that Christ went through and you went through to prepare the way that we can be around your throne, part of your family, part of even your administration in heaven. And all we can say, Lord, give us your spirit to grasp the, the depth and the beauty of this. Go with us now. May the Spirit of God linger in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.